Welcome to the Level Up English podcast, the best place to come to practice the English language, learn about the British accent and culture. With me, your host, Michael Lavers. Hello, English learners, and a big welcome back to the Level Up English podcast. Today, I have an exciting conversation with Dr. Valerie Friedland. And she has a book coming out called Like Literally Dude Arguing for the Good in Bad English. And we discuss this book a little bit today and topics around this book as well. Valerie is a professor, a socio linguist, an author, and a public speaker. And she really is an expert when it comes to language. And today I try to pick her brain. On these topics, and we cover such questions as Is it okay to say um and uh in a conversation? I'll give you a hint. The answer is it's actually not that bad. And actually, Valerie has a really positive outlook when it comes to all aspects of language. You really get to see her optimism and positivity in this episode. And she made me feel a lot better. About all the things that I say, such as um, ah,、uh, right, like, and all these kind of words that are often considered bad in English, but these actually have some special meaning. And we discussed that in the conversation today. I learned so, so much from this episode. I found it really fascinating, and I know that you will as well. I also know that some people do find these conversations a bit more. Challenging, partly because a conversation tends to be harder than a monologue. A monologue is one person talking alone, but also because Valerie has a, a, a nice American accent and I have my British accent. So hearing those two together might be difficult if you're not used to it. So I think in that case, the transcript really, really will help. I spend so much time getting the transcript perfect. So, if you want to access this, it's like the subtitles for the episodes. You can go to levelupenglish.school and become a member today. As a member, you will have access to all transcripts for every episode. So, as I'm talking, it's highlighting the word I'm saying. If that is interesting to you, go to that link or click the link in the podcast description on your app. I won't waste any more of your time because I want to get into this exciting conversation. So let's get right into it now. And I really hope you enjoy it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Level Up English podcast. This is Michael, and I'm joined today by a very special guest, Dr. Valerie Friedland. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm very excited to be here. Excellent. Thank you for joining me. I'm really excited because you have a new book coming out very soon, or maybe now, actually, called Like Literally Dude. I can see it behind、yes. you as well. Yes, yes. It's called Like Literally Dude.、Um, and the subtitle is Arguing for the Good in Bad English. Because it's really about reimagining all these features in our speech that are colloquial and we tend not to like, but we use them all the time and they help sort of ease communicative, you know, closeness.、Um, and it's sort of reimagining them as actually not bad features and positive developments in English rather than bad ones. 
I love this topic because I think I'm a very awkward person. I feel a bit, I don't know, you, you can probably tell I'm always awkward and a bit shy. And I feel like this is going to make me feel good about all of these umming and ahs I do. Uh, although I am going to be very conscious of all of them in this conversation. <laughs> well, first of all, I don't get the awkward read off of you at all. But it, it is really funny when I do these and we study these a lot in my classes at, at the university. And it's really funny because once we mention one for the rest of that class period, everybody giggles when someone utters one, right? So an um or a like or literally used figuratively because it's, of course, in your head at that point. But yes, mm. my goal is to make people feel a lot less self-aware. Uh, I mean, a lot more self-aware of the use and the purpose and the power behind a lot of these features. And they're not mistakes, even though we think of them that way. They're actually really, really good for um, solidarity building and for informal context and for making us sort of embrace communication for what it's meant for, which is to make connections. So, you know, obviously, if you're giving a speech, you may want to watch your ums and uhs. But in other contexts, you really want to use these if you want to make connections with people. Okay. It's it's very interesting. I mean, there was just one line from your book that I even wrote down because it felt like you were talking to me. Uh, you you said literally the podcaster who felt self-conscious about what others had called out as his overly frequent use of right. And that's exactly <laughs> what I do. I always say right at the end of like I'm explaining like right, right. And I'm aware of it. And I, I got to stop doing that. It's too much. But you're kind of you kind of called me out there. I don't know if it was... I did. Yes, I was directing <laughs> that towards you, Michael. <laughs> no, it's really funny because I was having this lovely conversation. And this is really before the book came out. This was actually just about sociolinguistics, which is the area I work in. And we were having a conversation about all the little speech, so-called tics that people are aware of in their own speech. And we all have one. Um, unless you're very weird and you are so self-confident, no one ever has called you out on anything or you don't notice what other people say about people's speech, you're going to have something in your speech you're self-conscious about. And this is whether you're a native speaker or a non-native speaker. There's something that we're aware of in our own speech. We have these habits. It's called your linguistic style. That's what linguists call it. We all have a linguistic style. And some of us have a linguistic style that involves more things like write um, at, as a tag question or a sort of listenership check, which is what you're talking about. Um, others don't use that one, but they might say, you know, mm -hmm. I did this, you know, and really, you know, and that's something they're self-conscious about. Or for a lot of uh, younger speakers, it's using like in non-traditional places. Or, you know, I've heard a lot of people complain about the use of literally, non-literally, or people that use so too much. I mean, all of us have something. Um, we may not be aware of our something, but other people probably have, have noticed it. And I'm here to redeem those because we actually see that, especially for things like discourse markers, such as you know, and also the use of right you're talking about, where you're sort of information checking or listenership checking, because obviously no one's answering you back. It's sort of just a, a t attention um, sort of marker. I'm just making sure you're paying attention. I'm just making sure you're getting what I'm saying. That's actually done more by conscientious speakers than by non-conscientious speakers. So when we look mm. at studies of psychology um, of the speakers that use them, we find that people on on tests that show that they're more aware of others and more self-conscious about their speech and more conscientious, they tend to be higher users of discourse markers. So I don't think it's a bad feature. It shows you're conscientious and you're aware of the potential for a listener to not keep up with what you're saying and sort of you know give them a chance to catch up. 
That's interesting. So you, you can kind of get a sense of some people's characteristics and their personality through these ticks and, and these, these things. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's what I do for a living. I'm a sociolinguist, which means mm -hmm. I look at how language shapes social identity and how social identity shapes language, which is a little more unexpected, but also extremely important. Uh, and, and language tells us a lot about who we are. It's, it's, it's something that we notice just regionally. It's something we notice in accents, right? Foreign speakers have accents. My parents actually are not native English speakers. So when I was growing up in a small town in the South, in the United States, which didn't really have a lot of speakers from outside the country, it was something that every single kid that came to my house to play commented on my parents' accent, not in a negative way, but just sort of like, huh, I noticed this thing. Right. And, and I think sometimes we feel self-conscious about people noticing the way we speak, but actually mm -hmm. it's a gift. It's a gift to be different. It's a gift to have this depth of, of speaking that allows us to show who we are and reveal the way we believe, where we come from, what we think, um, who we love. Those are really good attributes, not negative ones. Mm, it's something that I focused on a lot in the past on my podcast is, I guess, embracing your own accent, because I get a lot of learners trying to adopt a British accent, which is not necessarily bad, but they, they want to sound just, let's say, just like me, for example. And I'm always like, well, it's not, maybe it's not bad to try to sound natural, but I don't think it's really good to, you know, try to forget about your own accent and push it away. I think accent is something we should be proud of and embrace. And I, I like what you're saying. And also you're taking it also to these uh, features of speech as well, not just accent, which right, is right. Nice it's, and I, it's sort of accents are broad, right? Uh, mm -hmm. The way we talk is broad. We have differences among world Englishes, so we can all be English speakers, but have very different types of English we speak. We can have different languages we speak, but we can also have really subtle differences in the way we speak. So I can be in the same city as someone else, and both of us having grown up at that in that one location. So we would officially have the same dialect, but have different aspects of my social identity that come out by the linguistic choices I make. And so getting back to that idea of linguistic style, we all develop a linguistic style, which is sort of, I think the word that linguists like to use, but I, it means combination. We use a bricolage of these different speech features that we have access to, to build a social identity. And that shifts depending on what context we're in. So the types of features I might use when I'm going for a job interview are obviously going to be at the more formal, conservative, um, sort of state and boring level of my a repertoire or my continuum as a speaker of any any language than when I go talk to my friends at a bar or a pub uh, where you are, <laughs> where I'm going to be wanting to do solidarity-based features. I want to mm -hmm. be, you know, open and friendly and kind and warm. And that's a very different set of features. So we all have access to this continuum. We call it a repertoire in linguistics. But what happens is how our repertoires are built depend on where we came from, our gender, our ethnicity, our country, our nation, our, our views, our beliefs, our ideologies, uh, and also even where we are in life, our stage of life, age-wise, our career, our, our background. All of those things have very particular types of language that go along with it um, because they help us identify as a person from that background or a person 
at that stage of life, which helps us make our way through in the world. I guess where we get self-conscious is where we think we're talking to people that don't share that same background, that don't Mm -hmm. have that same linguistic style. And that's where we get into sort of weird aspects of social power that come into play to make ourselves feel bad about the way we talk. And it's really about social power rather than reality of doing anything wrong with our speech. And and that's really the main message of my book. It, It does go into all these features and it explains the patterns behind them, the science behind them, uh, the very specific ways we use them. But one of the bigger messages of the book is we should be proud of them. We should embrace them. We should recognize the value and the power behind them and not feel bad anymore about them. And if you are one of those people that judges other people, then you should realize it's really a you problem, not a them problem. Yeah, yeah. One uh, example of I guess questioning that is right at the beginning, I was wondering how I should pronounce the name of your book, because I think it's very different. I would say literally, and maybe you would be more like literally or something a little Yes, I would, right. So different. you have a different stress pattern. Absolutely. And I was like, should, should I say it in a more like you know, American international way? I was like, no, I'm going to be proud of my accent and say it in the way I want to. <laughs> That's exactly right. See, you've embraced the message of my book. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> nice. What what would you say got you interested in this area in the first place? I I know you've had some experience in learning other languages as well. I don't know if it's related or if it came separately. Um, Yeah, it's sort of related. You know, as I mentioned, my parents are non-native speakers of Mm -hmm. English. And so I was aware, especially being in a a town that didn't have a lot of sort of, you know, we were very exotic. They didn't have a lot of non-native speakers at the time. And it's become more cosmopolitan since I have been an adult. But at that time, it was kind of unusual to have parents that didn't speak English as their first language. And um, so we were special in that way and not always in a good way. You know, I think as a child, you don't want to be different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember just sort of people la- sort of, and I don't think they did it in a negative way, but they would constantly repeat my name in the way my mother said it because my mother is French. So she'd say Valérie. And so, you know, every time someone would hear her say my name, they would instantly imitate her and say it back to me as a sort of joking. Um, And I remember being really incensed at that as a kid because it was calling her out as being different. They didn't mean it that way. I really do think they were charmed by the way she said it. Everybody has always talked about what a charming accent my mother has. But for me as a child, it made me very aware of social differences. So they were were not calling out my mom for having a different accent. They were calling us out for being different, for not fitting in. And so it's that social aspect that really appealed to me. I, I kind of wanted to understand why language worked that way. So why did it matter how my mother said my name? Why was that noticeable? And then even more so, why did that give them some behavioral motivation to behave in a certain way towards me that was different than they would someone else's family? So I, it was really, I think, that that aspect that drove me to find this more interesting than just languages per se when I went into college. So I went to Georgetown University, which is very well known for their sort of international schools. And I was interested in studying languages because at that time I just wanted to travel and, and, you know, spend time, you know, spend time in different countries, learning different things. You know, that yeah. was my 18 year old self. That was the entirety of my life goal at that time. So I, I took Chinese mainly because I thought it would make me seem impressive to the college application board. And also because I thought it was interesting. I had a Chinese friend and it just appealed to me. And I really sucked. I sucked at Chinese. I mean, I will admit it. I had a sub- slightly Southern accent. And, you know, as you know, Chinese has tone. 
and you take a southern accent and you put it with Chinese tone, and I sounded like I was singing Chinese opera. <laughs> <laughs> so it didn't go so well for me. But as part of my major, I had to take linguistics courses, and I had really never heard of studying language that way, which is the scientific study of language. So you break down language to underneath the differences among languages to what's the core fundamental similarity in languages. You know, how, how are they structured similarly? What are the sounds that create different varieties of a, of a language or different varieties across languages? Um, how, how do we find the human brain interacts with language in the ways that makes us similar and different across different cultures? Those kinds of questions. And I, I found those classes in the most interesting of all my classes I took. Um, so I just found myself starting to get drawn towards doing more and more of those. And then I took a class that involved language and society, where it looked at how language and the social world interact. So the types of things I write about in my book, and it was a game changer. When I took that class, I thought, oh my God, I can finally understand my boyfriend. That was my first <laughs> question, thought. And then my second thought was, now I can really see how language works at such a larger level than I ever understood when I spoke before. You know, I just never thought of it. So that made me decide to go pursue it for a graduate degree. And here I am many years later. Mm, that's so fascinating. That's really interesting. Um, I, I did want to ask you about some of the uh, language features you wrote, write about in the book. One of them, which I, I had never heard of before, is vocal fry. Uh, I'm not sure. You can let me know if you know if it, this is in British English or if it's more of an American thing. But it actually is in British English, but okay. it's not talked about as a negative feature in British English, mm. which is probably why you haven't heard of it. It has become something that is basically a, you know, a pariah here in the United States. And it has a really fascinating history. It's a pariah here in the United States, mainly because it has become associated with women's voices. And there is a long history of features associated with women's speech being maligned over time or being looked at as vacuous or empty-headed or, you know, clueless or uncertain. So and that's a bit really of misogyny there or something. Yeah, yes, absolutely. It ties to very long-standing beliefs about the value of women's talk and the value of women's speech. And we can go back and see this as far back as Aristotle. So this is a very old ingrained belief we have about women not having much to say. And so features that are more prevalent in women's talk, because we notice them as women's features, get tied up in these beliefs we have about women's speech not being very valuable. And then that combination makes us decide those features aren't valuable. And vocal mm. fry is one of those. And so it's a crackly kind of popping sound that comes up when people get to the end of a sentence. So I'll give you an example. I don't know about that. I don't think so. No. Yeah. Right. Right. Do you hear that Wh kind of whatever. crackliness? Whatever. Mm. That... Okay, so that has become very prevalent in the American speech. Now, what's fascinating, and this gets to the British side of your question, is it's been treated like it's a new feature that all of a sudden it just popped out of nowhere and young women everywhere caught this epidemic. <laughs> but actually, if you look at the history of research, of, sci of scientific and linguistic research on vocal fry, it had been studied as a sociolinguistic marker, a sort of metalinguistic uh, messaging system in British speech for about 50 years. And it was mainly found in British male speech, particularly mm. um, among those that had sort of an aristocratic background. Okay. So upper like class, kind of upper male. Class posh, yeah. Yes, yes. And it has sort of um, was associated with a board resignation, sort of that upper class male, like, I don't know, 
that, you know, I'm not so I'm too busy to be bothered with you. And that would is where the vocal fry would tend to come out. And in studies done in the 1980s in Britain, uh, comparing different dialects and comparing male and female voices, vocal fry was about almost 10 times more likely in male voices. Mm-hmm. But the thing about male voices is that they're low pitched in general compared to women's voices. And vocal fry is a low pitched affectation. So that means that you have to be in a low pitch register in order to make vocal fry because vocal fry is actually a a result of, so these are your vocal folds. And when you kind of have them laxer and looser, uh, um, they sort of vibrate slower and that gives a low popping sound. So if, you know, you have air going through your vocal folds and they're really you know, held together tightly, you're not going to get that kind of loose vibration. But if they're sort of loose and lax like that, it'll vibrate more. And that only happens when you have a low pitch. So men eat vocal fry, but they already have a low pitch. So dropping a little lower in that pitch to make vocal fry doesn't stand out as much. Mm-hmm. But when you start at a higher pitch and you drop down to a lower pitch, it's just more salient to a listener. And that tends to be what happens with women. They start at a higher pitch and then they have to drop down to a much lower pitch. It's a sharper drop for women to get that vocal fry going. And it usually happens at the end of a sentence. And therefore, I think it's just more salient to us. But there was actually a recent study in Britain with smartphone data. So they would call telephone calls on smartphones. And of course, you had to give approval for them to take your telephone calls. But they used the telephone calls to study vocal fry. And they found the same pattern still upholds. It is prevalent in British speech, but mainly among males, not females. But And so you don't hear anything about it, right? No one complains. But you hop over to the United States where it's prevalent among women, the exact same feature, the exact same process, and all of a sudden it's a pariah. Mm -hmm. It's bad. It means you're clueless. You're stupid. You don't know what you're talking about, and it sounds awful, and it's some sort of vocal problem. Um, so it's it's done by women in the United States, probably because it has this sense of authority and weight with it. So in other countries, when you see vocal fry use, like in Australia and Britain, the associated um, perceptions have been that, oh, it's someone who has wealth, it's someone who has power, it's someone who has authority, because that's really who it's been associated with. Well, it seems like women have taken that over because in career or professional context, they need to have that power and authority in their voices. Uh, Okay. And what is complained about women's voices? That they're too high-pitched, they're shrill, they lack authority. So what's a way to solve that? Drop into a lower pitch, put on some vocal fry, and then you're getting both your higher-pitch voice and your natural speaking voice, but also some excursions into a low-pitch vocal fry, which gives you more of that authoritative weight behind your voice. Mm. You, you do notice that I find with, um, I've heard other people say this as well, um, women in positions of power, like presidents or, or CEOs, they they often do talk in a lower pitch, don't they? Absolutely. I don't know if it's how accidental that is or intentional. But I think it's quite intentional, actually. It's interesting. And it may not even be conscious, but it's, yeah. I mean, it has been, right? Margaret Thatcher is a famous case that actually worked on lowering her voice pitch over time. And I think the studies have shown basically maybe a 50 hertz drop in her voice pitch over time. And there's also been, a, there was a study done, I think it was in the late 1990s by a group of Australian researchers that found that women over the past 50 years have dropped their vo- voice pitches. So oh. I, I think it's actually both intentional at a certain level and unconscious. So we are, 
we are designing ourselves to be more successful. And part of that is this unconscious move towards a, a, a vocal pitch that is more accessible in the professional world or more successful in the professional world. Mm, okay. It is very interesting. Like my wife is a teacher and I notice like when she's in her teaching voice, it's like very low and authoritative. And then she comes home and it's all high pitched and nice to me. <laughs> I don't like her teacher voice so much. Though. <laughs> I know, I bet not. Well, what, what's really fascinating is if you look at the um, psychological literature on how we, we perceive different vocal pitches, mm -hmm. high pitch is perceived as um, positive on attractiveness scales for women. So it, and which probably ties from an evolutionary perspective to higher pitches being associated with youth and fertility yep. and um, sort of having no kind of vocal pathology that would indicate a state of bad health because sometimes our voice can change. For example, if we have a cold, our voice pitch changes because we have that cold. So it probably has an evolutionary um, stand, starting point. But we generally find women with higher pitched voices more attractive, but less authoritative and less powerful and less credible as sort of professionals. For men, on the other hand, high pitched voices don't get them much of anything in terms of attractiveness or power. So men have low pitches and they get both attractiveness and power from that. But women have high pitches that are attractive, but not powerful and not authoritative but low pitch will get them that. So can you see why there might be a motivation for women to lower their pitch or be put on teacher voice? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I like on... to call that parent voice because you yeah. don't go and say, honey, when you're mad at your child, <laughs> right? You say, honey. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. So you can almost hack it if you know about that. You can, you can choose what voice you want to have depending on what you want to get in life. That's interesting. Um, yeah, well, hacking it, it would be a little tricky. I mean, it seems to be need to be more self-conscious to come out to be um, credible because okay. I don't know if you paid attention to the Elizabeth Holmes trial here in the United States. She was a woman who was CEO of a blood startup, a, a blood a company that did, um, they were going to be able to do all labs, all blood labs by taking just a prick of your finger rather than an actual blood draw. Mm -hmm. But it turned out, and so she founded this huge startup, got a lot of venture capital, millions and millions, billions probably of investors, but it turns out it was a bit of a hoax. She never really did have the technology and she ended up getting um, prosecuted and found guilty of, of fraud basically. But one of the things people called out about her was this incredibly low pitch voice she had. So if you saw her, she's actually a fairly petite woman. This big booming voice came out of her and people that had known her at Stanford in college said, that's not how she spoke. That mm. She doesn't actually talk that way. And it was so low, it didn't, it didn't feel authentic. Um, so there have been claims that she lowered her voice pitch to get that sort of CEO credibility. Whether she did or not, it's hard to say because, you know, people can lower their voice pitch over time. And you can also have different um, physical characteristics that occur over time. So if you have voice nodules or you maybe have some pathology in your voice, it can actually change your voice pitch. Or even if you go on some sort of hormone or birth control pill, things like that, those can all affect your voice pitch. Yeah. So whether it's really true that she did it. But what I'm saying there is you do have to be careful that it comes across as natural. Yes, I see. Okay, interesting. Another thing I wanted to get to, which... I want to ask you partly, I think listeners will be interested in this, but also for selfish reasons, because as a podcaster, I try to make a conscious effort to reduce my uh, ums and all this kind of stuff. And of course, recording your voice is different than talking in the real world. But do you think, let's start with English learners, do you think English learners should be conscious about these? Do you think they should try to avoid them or... I don't know. What's your view on I, you that? You know, I think, 
Well, there, there, I mean, first of all, there, as I detail in that chapter, there are so many fascinating aspects of um and uh that we don't realize. Um, one thing, and as, as I, um, so now we're going to be aware of every uh and um we utter. <laughs> one thing we, we have studied is how they're used and why they come up. And I think when you are using them in your everyday speech, when they come up, you think of them as something bad, like they're a mistake that come into play, but actually they signal that you're doing speech planning, which, I mean, who wants to talk without speech planning? That would not be good. So it's a good sign that you're, when you, um, and, uh, it means that you're really doing some hefty cognitive retrieval. And we find that the more cognitive retrieval, the more cognitive processing a person is doing, the more likely they are to, um, and, uh, mm. so if you look at it from that perspective, it's actually a sign that you're doing really heavy lifting from a, a processing standpoint. Which is why I think non-native speakers tend to be aware of them because they may tend to, at first, when they're first learning learning language, do them a little more often because they often occur right before a word retrieval. So when we're trying to come up with that word and either we have a lot of options to choose from. So when you have several different versions or synonyms of a word, we find that you uh and um more before you choose one. But also simply when you might not be as familiar with the non-native version of that word. Because we also find that people um and uh before more difficult words, less common words, or less familiar words, or more abstract words. Mm -hmm. All all words that we have to think harder before we come up with. So if you're a non-native speaker, obviously those those foreign words are going to be less familiar, so they will increase your umming and uhing. And this is a very natural consequence of heavy cognitive retrieval. Also, sentence structure can affect it. So the more difficult it is to build a sentence from a syntactic standpoint. So if you have embedded clauses, for example, versus a sentence without one, we will also um and um more in that context. So I think if you step back, what you see is when you were working really hard, you're doing more difficult work uh, in terms of building a sentence, picking a word. That's when uh and ums occur. So being self-conscious about the fact that you're working really hard from a cognitive standpoint, I think is a weird thing, right? Mm -hmm. And we should be proud of that fact that, oh my gosh, I'm signaling that I'm actually really working hard here. So give me a minute. The other thing that I'm going to do is they actually inform the listener that you're not done talking, that you are, have something else to say, but you just want to indicate to them Hold on. And which is probably why we um and uh rather than take a silent pause. Because if you stop talking completely, people sometimes misconstrue that as an opportunity for them to speak. Because we, we call those turn transition cues. We give each other clues when we're done talking that I'm done talking. One of those clues is I just stopped talking. Um, which is an obvious one, right? So if I just stopped talking while I thought, then you might think, oh, look, I'm going to hop in here. But by either umming or eyeing, I give you a message like, okay, hold on. I'm coming back. Don't, don't <laughs> take my role. What's really fascinating is um and uh seem to work in a very specific way when we are indicating that I need to delay. If I, uh, if I say, uh, it means I'm just going to be a minute. It's just going to be a very quick delay. But if I, um, it means I'm, having to work a little harder and you should hold on a little longer. So we don't uh and um randomly. We uh and um before particular places and for particular reasons. So it's I think from that perspective it's really fascinating. But the most fascinating part is when someone uhs or ums, you as a listener actually benefit. So when I uh before I say something, it actually helps you be faster to retrieve the word I'm intending and remember it better later. Mm -hmm. And we have quite a bit of um, research that shows that. So a really fascinating experiment had people 
pick two objects on a screen or they were shown two objects on a screen and they were told by the researchers, I'm going to say a prompt, a speech prompt with the name of that word. And I want you to pick it out on the screen. So click on it. One of the tricks was they had in the experimental instructions when they were explaining the experiment mentioned one of the objects, but not the other. So say you had a tree and a dog, a picture of a tree and a dog. So they say something like, well, when we say the word dog, you're going to pick the dog. So I would have already said the word dog. So it's already active, meaning you've retrieved it already cognitively, but they didn't mention the other one. So when they were giving the speech prompts, people were faster at picking out the right object and, and even moved the cursor before the um had finished when an um preceded the target word because they knew it was the unmentioned object. So because dog had been mentioned, but tree hadn't, when the researcher said, now look for the, uh, they actually knew it was going to be the, the tree because it hadn't okay. been mentioned. And that uh clued them into it's going to be the new information rather than the old because uh and um are increased before new information. So it really has a cognitive benefit. It makes people faster at retrieval, mm-hmm. faster at word recognition. And then when they gave them a surprise test later on, in a similar experiment, they gave them a pop test. And about an hour after they'd done ex- the experiment and asked them, which words did you hear in the experiment and which ones didn't? They actually performed better when an uh had preceded those words. So that they that meant they had a better memory for those words later. So all that is a synopsis of why you shouldn't worry about your ums and uhs, <laughs> right? They, they really are just help aids and help for both me as a speaker and you as a listener. That said, when they get to be overly prevalent, it's hard for people to not pay attention to them. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's where people get self-conscious about it. But just in general, if you're saying them, you know, as a, a help in getting what you want out, I wouldn't worry too much about them. Mm, that, that's so fascinating. I'm, I'm- Again, kind of conscious of what I'm about to say. Am I going to say um or ah? But I've never heard of that before. So you said that um usually is like a longer thought and then uh is usually like a quicker. I'm going to talk very soon. Right. Absolutely. That's right. So researchers took a bunch of corpora, they're called, which is fancy speak for collections of conversation. So we're talking about, you know, sort of like training data for chat GPT or some sort of program. Mm-hmm. They use thousands of hours of telephone conversations or um, recorded conversations on, you know, various um, sort of lecture halls or, you know, all sorts of whatever gets put into the internet or whatever researchers have studied. So whenever you get these conversations, they often end what we call corpora, which then gives you huge amounts of data to study. So they several in several different experiments, um, some more recent than others, they would go look at the ums and uhs in those corpora, in those conversations. And what they found was when they measured the length of the delay the, of the silence after an um or uh, it was all consistently longer after um which meant they needed more time to come up with what they were saying. Mm-hmm. So it, it seems to indicate something about how much trouble you're having retrieving the information that you're trying to say. Okay. I, I'm going to be really conscious of that from now on like when I talk with my friends and see if I notice that, because that's going to be a fun little game to play. I'll, I'll try to I know. listen see, at the same time. This is the problem. You'll never think about language the same way, so yeah. it's going to be exhausting. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, there we go again. I said it. But I... I've got so many things to ask you about now. I've got too many things in my head. I, I suppose the one that I'm conscious of the most is when I am using it as, as you said, the way to be like, hey, don't interrupt me. I'm still going to talk. Right. But yeah, I, I've always assumed that was kind of a bad thing as if like, I don't want you to talk, but it's nice to hear you say it in a more positive way. 
Well, we give each other clues like that all the time. I mean, we we have conversations and we have to learn to listen to cues and Mm. we won't know when someone else is done talking unless they give us clues about when they are. So I, I think we don't look at it as a negative attribute. Um, it's much more rude when someone interrupts you, uh, right? Sure, and they yeah. just decide what you're saying is not important. But a lot of times we want to also tell them, you know, whether if I'm saying, uh, what's really interesting is if I'm saying, uh, what it, it doesn't do is tend to make the listener try to come up with an answer for us. But if we say, um, it seems to be more of an indicator that we might need some help or people tend to take it that way because it indicates a longer delay. So sometimes people will try to fill in your blank for you. Mm-hmm. So actually, I think if you look at it that way, it's a lovely um, sort of communicative aid that tells us we're in this together. We're working mm-hmm. on this together. We're building this conversation together and we're giving each other clues about how to do that successfully. So I don't think it's a negative. E- either side is a negative yeah. uh, way so to look uplifting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The, the we're, only better, thing I would, we're better in speech than we think we are. I guess we've had we've had many many years of practice throughout history, right? <laughs> the, the only thing I would say as a as an English teacher, I don't know what you think of this, but maybe maybe you actually touched upon this is trying to reduce ums and ahs if it's the only thing people say, because I think a big part of English is other filler words like you know I would say. Ooh, well, in my opinion, and, and using these phrases to give you time to think. And yes, I, I well, try I mean, to encourage learners to use them yes, as well. Yeah, I, I think there's a role for, for that kind of thing. But here's what I will say is um, filled pauses, which is what we call uh, ums and uhs, actually are different mm. substantively from filler words, which is what you're talking about. But doesn't mean it doesn't mean you can't substitute them. Right. You can, if you sort of put a conscious effort into them, especially word initially, um, we find there's my um again. We find that um has sort of started to work as a discourse marker where it often is at, at, at the end, beginning of a sentence, which is where discourse markers often occur. It, it is sort of a metaphorical wait a minute. Uh, people have been putting in their speech. So we'll say, um, yeah, I don't think so. Right. Where you sort of hold the floor and you're basically doing a metaphorical pausing. And it's not really anymore just a filled pause. It's become a discourse marker. Yes, and in yes. those cases, absolutely, it's fairly easy to say, well, okay, so perhaps you can put something else in there. You know, my theory on language is that um, we should work on what's natural to us and not worry too much about these little quirks of speech that tend to bother us because they're usually there for a good reason. What I will say about ums and uhs, and when you look at the perception literature on how people perceive them, and this is separate from the idea of how they are beneficial, because they do seem to be beneficial to us, they are perceived negatively when people overuse them. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think, but we tend to suspend that. There's good evidence that when it's a non-native speaker or someone that we would assume is going to have difficulty speaking for whatever reason we find that people suspend the same sorts of perceptions that they might give a native speaker. So um, for one, it means that we might not have the same processing benefits by listening to ums and uhs for a foreign speaker because we don't know that they're doing the same work. It seems like when we look at the experiments that have non-native speakers be the stimuli for the experiment, when subjects are listening to that speech, they may not have the same processing benefits because they're not sure that the non-native speaker is using them informationally, but they would assume a native speaker is. Yeah. But yeah. the same goes for when we would judge a native speaker for using ums and uhs because we expect them to know what they're saying better. We 
do tend to be gentler on our perception of non-native speakers because we don't have that same expectation. So again, I think the important thing here is depending on what level of language learning you're at is not worrying about those things until you feel so confident in your fluency in a language that that can be something you need to worry about. Otherwise, I, listeners are generally very um, sympathetic, very empathetic, and very considerate and patient for speakers that are non-native and searching for words because we re- realize how hard that can be. So mm-hmm. I think you shouldn't worry about them too much. But in the grand scheme of things, it may be something you want an awareness about later that if you're using a lot of ums and uhs, that can detract from the message. Yeah, I, I like that. I, I think it's, I mean, there is unfortunately a double standard in my opinion where say if I made a grammatical mistake, people wouldn't really care. You know, if I'm talking to a friend, they may not even notice. But if a if a learner makes a grammatical mistake, that might be perceived as a, as a natural mistake rather than just a feature of their speech, which is, is a shame. But I guess it's like you have to learn the rules before you can break them. Maybe it's something like that. But I, I, I like the, the point of positivity, which is uh, focus on natural speech and don't worry about... I guess, actively changing things that you perceive to be bad along the way. is Right. I guess, and I think, yeah. I mean, the, the piece of the puzzle there, I think, is sort of that we process speech differently a little bit if, if it's from a non-native speaker than from a native speaker, because we're much more adjusted to native speech. So it, we don't do, need to do as much speaker normalization, which is a fancy word for we kind of expect the type of signal we're going to get from a native speaker, the type of um, sort of audio information we're getting from them. So an accent by a native speaker, if it's just someone from, you know, a different state or a different part of the country, doesn't tend to be as hard for us to process as Mm. non-native speech, which has different vowel sounds, for example, than the ones we are used to. So it takes us a little more cognitive effort to process it. Um, So it's just, it's a different um, sort of processing uh, feature that we're doing when we're listening to non-native speakers. And so I think we tend to pay a little more attention to their signal because we're we're kind of hip- habitually listening to native speakers. So we don't do that much work. Uh, and we may not attend that closely to their signal because we don't really have to. It's just, it's become a habit, sort of like closing your garage door when you leave your house. If you have one, you know, you don't even remember. Sometimes you have to go back to check that you've closed it because it's so automatic. Mm-hmm. But when you're in a new place, you pay more attention to things, right? Because you don't know your surroundings. Well, the same thing goes with language. When you meet a person that doesn't speak the same accent you're used to, they're a non-native speaker, you have to pay more attention to the signal, which probably makes you pay more attention to their mistakes. That's so interesting. So it's probably not even intentional. It's just the processing effort difference. I've never seen it that way before, but that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Hmm. I mean, there's still so much I want to ask you, but we're kind of running out of time. But there was one, another quote I wrote down from your book, which I loved, which might be a nice way to kind of end the conversation, which was, there's no right way to speak English. Very simple, but I, I think I think that was quite, um, quite meaningful. And I think the, the listeners will find that useful as well. Yes, it's so fascinating to me how we seem to not believe that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's such a simple sentence. It's such a simple sentiment, but it's so true because people often try to behave as if that's not the way we expect language to be. We are creatures of of change. If you look back in the history of English, even if you're not a non-native speaker, 
our language has changed drastically. I mean, it was basically a Germanic language a thousand years ago, and it's unintelligible to us today. So we can't even read Old English, even native English speakers. Mm-hmm. The period of Middle English between Old English and now was such a rapid period of change, and it was inspired not by any weird things that, you know, space aliens that came down and zapped us or cognitive decline. It was inspired by contact between languages. Most of the massive changes that have happened to English have happened because we became different people with different needs and had mixture of our language with other languages from Old Norse that brought over by the Vikings to French brought over by the Normans, right? To massive influx of Latin and classical languages in the early modern period to today having massive mixture from other languages, either from Asia or from South America and Central America or Mexico, depending on where you are. This is all added to the richness of English. And and to pretend like it doesn't actually still do that today is ignoring the history of the language itself. So would an old English speaker think we speak English? No, they wouldn't. (laughs) And so what if they judge us as not speaking the right English? It's just, it's a weird social belief that has no validity historically or scientifically um, to believe that there is a right way. And right, the idea of rightness is actually an 18th century invention. And that's when we see the rise of what's called the complaint culture, where we like to complain about the way people talk. It really didn't happen that way before that. We expected people to sound different. Um, and we accepted it. It wasn't a big deal. So yes, I absolutely stand by that. <laughs> there is yeah. no one right way to speak English. The trick is, can we make connections? Mm-hmm. Can we get the work we need done in the language we're speaking? And as long as we can do that, I think you you speak beautifully no matter how you speak. I think that is a perfect way to end it. That, that's amazing. Uh, maybe before we do actually go, could you tell us a bit more about your book and, and where people can find you and the book as well? Absolutely. Well, I would love it if people were interested in reading the book because I'm really, really proud of it. It's a fun book. It's also, it has a lot of details and information about English that you've probably never heard. Um, if you ever wanted to know the pattern behind your likes, <laughs> it's it's in that book. So it's called Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. And you can find it wherever books are sold, but obviously on Amazon. Um, it's It's um, distributed and published by Penguin Random House. So you can also just find it on the website for Penguin Random House. Uh, But if you'd like to find me, and it'll have more information about everything I do, including the uh, monthly blog that I write for the magazine Psychology Today, you can just go to my website, which is www.valeriefriedland.com. And that's V-A-L-E-R-I-E. F-R-I-D-L-A-N-D.com. And there I have all sorts of articles I've written. I have information about the research I do as an academic and also information on where to get the book. So I'd love it if people would come sign up for my email list as well. Amazing. I will make sure those links are all accessible on the show notes so people can just click very easily. And yeah, I do really recommend the book. It's so fascinating. And I, I think it, I don't know if you had learners in mind when you wrote it, but I think it will be interesting for both native speakers and learners. Um, I think there's a lot there for everyone, uh, I imagine. I think I always have learners in mind because my parents were learners of sure, English. Yeah. And so that really shaped the way I responded to English and the way I, I approached English. So I, I wrote it really for everyone. There's really nobody that wouldn't see themselves in this book, I think. Yeah, amazing. Nice. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Really enjoyed it. And yeah, hope to see you again soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to the Level Up 
English podcast. If you would like to leave a question to be answered on a future episode, then please go to levelupenglish.school forward slash podcast. That's levelupenglish.school slash podcast. And I'll answer your question on a future episode. Thanks for listening.